0: Okay, if you have your Bibles with you, if you could open up your Bibles to John chapter 19. John chapter 19 is going to be our text this morning. And uh, if you've been here for the last several weeks, you'll know that we're in a series called The Sermons, Seven Sermons from the Cross. And we're, what we're doing is we're, we're elevating and exalting the words of Jesus Christ ...that He spoke while He was on the cross. He spoke seven statements while He was on the cross. Each of them are bottomless sermons. And all we're doing is taking a one-week quick look into each of them. I encourage you to study them uh, more deeply, each of them. But seven sermons, seven statements of Jesus on the cross. So what I've done the last three weeks, let me continue to do... ...as we are almost at the halfway point of the series... Let me let me bring you one more little bit angle, little bit of an angle and perspective of crucifixion. And I've had some really interesting comments regarding these sermons. Some have said to me, "This is too much. It's hideous to see the cross and the, the agony and how people died." And I would agree; it, it is hideous. It's horrible. It's grotesque. Unfortunately, it's necessary. And we need to see what Jesus did. Not so that you will leave here each week going, what an awful, awful thing crucifixion is. We want to work you through that. Let's let's press through that and arrive and end at not how horrible crucifixion is, how incredible and how vast the love of God is for us that he would undergo that. God was crucified. I mean, that's just too big for our minds to get around. But he was. A crucifixion, friends, was a horrible, horrible way to die. In fact, the Roman statesman Cicero, he described it, quote, as the most cruel and disgusting penalty. The jo- Josephus, he was a Jewish historian. He was employed by Rome to write the Antiquities of the Jews... He called crucifixion the most wretched of deaths. The cross was called by Rome the unlucky tree. It was their favorite way of putting criminals, military enemies, rebellious foreigners, and slaves to death. In fact, so many slaves were crucified, it became nicknamed as the slave's punishment. You know, they've tried to estimate... How many people were crucified in the lifetime of Jesus, 30 to 33 years? Most historians have arrived at the same number, right around 30,000 people. It was hideous, and it was all over the place. In fact, in 70 AD, you've probably become familiar with this history, when, (coughs) when the Jews revolted from Rome, And Rome brought their crushing army to put that revolt down. While they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, their own historical accounts of General Titus says this, quote, there was not enough room for the crosses and not enough crosses for the bodies. This is the horror of the cross. And while we don't really like having to see it, It's not comfortable. If it's comfortable, you've been watching too many R-rated movies. If it's comfortable, there's something wrong. It should create in you an ambivalence, a, a sense of horror and revulsion, yet at the same time, wow, God loves me this much. This is unbelievable. And as abhorrent as it is to look at the face of Jesus On the cross, it's the greatest beacon of love you'll ever see in the Bible. It's the greatest demonstration of love that God has ever given us. He sent his son to die. In that era, not when they had drugs and medication that could slow down your heartbeat, yet make you oblivious to it. He sent his son to die at such a time when the death penalty was at its zenith of horror. And as we look at this third statement, we've covered two of them in the last two weeks. Next week, we'll start going on four, on the fourth one. But as we take this third statement, we're going to see what we are always going to see in all seven of them. They are bottomless wells of God's love, mercy, and care. So let me take you to the scene And let's let Luke start us there. John's going to get us to the cross. But Luke gets us to Golgotha. Here's what Luke says. You can read it behind me. All his acquaintances... And the women who had followed him from Galilee, Galilee is 75 miles north. There were all of his acquaintances, all these women that had followed him to celebrate the Passover. They knew something was going to happen. They didn't understand it, but they knew something consequential was going to take place because Jesus set his face resolutely to Jerusalem. They followed him. They all make it to Golgotha, but they're standing at a distance watching these things. So we know there's a group of his followers, likely his disciples, they're at a distance. But John says at some point, a smaller group of five detached from them and made their way right to the cross. Here's what verse 25 says in our passage, John 19. But standing by the cross of Jesus, they weren't at a distance. They were standing by the cross. They were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Let me introduce you to this group. And the first person that John introduces us to is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then as we keep reading, look at your text. We've got what's been controversial in the entire church age because of this little comma. Is this one person or are these two people? Is the comma after his mother's sister defining her as Mary, the wife of Clopas, or is it his mother's sister and Mary, the wife of Clopas? I think it's resolvable when you just simply reflect that Mary's dad, fathers did the naming, Mary's dad Was likely not going to name two of his daughters the same name. So, what I think we've got here, and what I'm confident to tell you we do have here when you take the synoptic gospels at a glance, we'll look at it in a minute. We've got four women. We've got his mom, and then we've got his mother's sister. Who's his mother's sister? When you come to Scripture and you're confused and you don't know the answer, friends, always hold in your mind this truth. Scripture always answers the questions in Scripture. It's there. You just got to find it. And so you go to the synoptic gospels, you go to Mark and you go to Matthew and you begin to see who this mother's, his mother's sister really was. And what they make clear, Matthew and Mark, is that she is Salome. Her name is Salome. She's the mother of James and John. John's the writer of this gospel. He doesn't name her, but remember, he never names himself anywhere in his gospel either. He's very humble. You'll remember Salome, I think, when I remind you of this. Do you remember the lady, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, of John and James, who came to Jesus and said, Jesus, would you promise me that when you come into your kingdom, one of my sons will sit on your left and another will sit on your right? And Jesus rebukes her gently, but he rebukes her. Now, who else but Jesus could rebuke somebody? And we find that they've been brought into greater worship and greater love. Here is Salome, his mother's sister. Yes, do your genealogical math. That means James and John are his cousins. It's interesting what scripture tells us. There's so many details. We learn things all the time. And so we've got Salome who is at the cross along with his mother, and then we get to Mary, the the wife of Clopas. We don't know who Mary, the wife of Clopas, is. There is somewhat of a veiled comment on those two men that were disciples of Jesus after he was resurrected on their way to, on the road to Emmaus. And you remember one of those disciples' names was Cleophas. That's a bit of a derivation of Clopas. It's about the same word in the Greek. So many have, have thought that this is his wife. We don't know, but so far we've got his mom, his mother, sister, Salome. We've got the wife of Clopas, and we've got a third Mary, Mary Magdalene. Well, three Marys in one group. Isn't that kind of unusual? Not really. Not at this time, not at this era. Mary was one of the most popular names for a Jewish girl. It was brought into their, their day from the name Miriam, Moses' sister, which ironically means bitterness. So we've got a lot of Marys in the time of Christ. So we've got three of them and this group of four women, Mary Magdalene, whom he cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene, who of Luke chapter eight was part of a group of women, ladies, listen, a group of women who worked and the wages that they earned, they underwrote the ministry of Jesus. You didn't know that. Well, that's how Jesus ministry was subsidized at least one way. Ladies, you are more important to the, to the kingdom of God than you may never may ever realize. And so we've got these four women that are at the cross, standing near the cross, but there's one more person in the group, verse 26. It's the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. His name is John. And men, listen, he's the only man in the group. We've got all these courageous women. It's dangerous. Listen, it's dangerous to make public your companionship with somebody that Rome puts on the cross your life could be in danger so we've got four women who are courageous we've got one man John and i want you to walk into this little group let's move this group of 5 four women and John to a group of 6 four women John and you okay and what's what are we going to see as we're standing near the cross standing by the cross of jesus well here's what you're going to see you're going to look up and see jesus on the cross and friends listen i want to i want to be honest with you you're going to hear him taking frenetically fast small gasps of air you can't breathe deeply on the cross remember you can inhale but you can't exhale not until you relax your intercoastal muscles. And the only way to relax those muscles to release your diaphragm, to get air out of your lungs, is to pull up or push up. And your nails are going through your wrists and a nail is growing through your feet. And every time you do that, it is sending bolts of electric pain through your nerve fibers. Because it's crushed and impaled and severed the nerves. So you're seeing Jesus who is gasping for air whose shoulders are on fire, you're hanging from your wrists and the weight is on your shoulders, it is agonizing, who is suffering and experiencing near limitless waves of pain. I don't think, I really don't think that first of all, I even contain the skill or the vocabulary to help you understand how horrible crucifixion was. But even if somebody had that skill and they were explaining this to you, I can tell you, I can assure you, the experience of it was far greater than its description. And we know as you're standing there in this group of now six that you could possibly be remembering the words of Isaiah. Isaiah got a picture of Jesus on the cross. The Spirit of God gave him this picture, and he prophesied about it. This is what he said. He shall be high and lifted up. That's a phrase for crucifixion. By the way, you weren't on a 20-foot cross. Your feet were almost always three to five feet above the ground. Baha'i and lifted up means crucifixion. Isaiah writing this hundreds of years before Christ went on and said, And shall be exalted. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Do you realize as Isaiah got this picture, this vision of Christ on the cross, what he was saying is that he did not even look human. And you're in that group. Now listen, you've got to climb inside this. You just can't statically read the Bible. You've got to empathize with the group. And you're seeing a man that's been so beaten and so whipped, so scourged, so marred that he doesn't even look human by this point and he's gasping for air it's nearly noon the sun is warming the air as it climbs towards 12 o'clock and what happens to open wounds and blood when the air gets warmer all of a sudden your ears begin to hear the buzzing of the nets and one of the worst parts of crucifixion was the inability To scare away the descending birds that would begin to pick at your lips and pick at your eyes for a meal. There's no way to get them off you. And there was no Roman guard that would have shooed them away. This is the scene that you're watching, the scene that you're standing next to. And as hideous as this is to even think about, how unthinkable is it that God himself would submit to this? This is God on the cross. This is God being killed. And you're standing right next to it. Friends, you've climbed into this and you've felt maybe in ghost whispers through your mind how awful that may have been, but the worst hadn't even come. By far, infinitely worse than the physical agony agony was going to be when the Father poured our sins and all of His dark, viscous wrath upon His head. And He was going to bear for the first time and taste and experience what it means to be a sinner. He was never a sinner, but He's going to take into His soul all of our sins. This is why John MacArthur, I think brilliantly wrote these words that Jesus endured on that cross what would have taken all individuals through all eternity and all of hell to endure. He endured what all of us would have endured for eternal destination in hell. He took that wrath onto his head. And he knows it's coming. He's glimpsed into this cup in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before this. And his heart is, it has to be shrinking from the terror and the horror of what he is going to be enduring. You know, I don't know about you, but listen, I've, I've, I've tried to be graphic with you this morning to get to this statement. When I'm sick or when I'm in a lot of pain, Maybe you've gone through chemotherapy, you know what it means to feel horrible. Maybe you've had post-surgery pain. But what do you do in that pain? When I'm in pain and I'm sick, listen, my whole world shrinks to me. I want to go to my bedroom, I don't want to come out, I ask Denise to keep the kids... Out in the front room, I just don't even want to be around her. I don't want to be around anybody. But I can tell you what Jesus does in the midst of his physical agony with impending spiritual wrath coming in just a few short minutes. All of a sudden, his heart erupts outward in care and compassion. When Jesus sees suffering from the cross, despite his own, he reaches out in care. And he sees this little group near his cross, and his pain-filled gaze falls on his mother. So, let's take you into the shoes of Mary for a minute. Moms, dads as a parent, we can identify to some degree, but moms especially. Can Can you feel Mary's heart breaking? This is her firstborn son. He is on that cross and he is suffering so terribly. You know how you feel when your children suffer. There's just no grief like a mom's for her children. I know this because I've done so many funerals. The piercest wail I've ever heard over the casket of a dead body came from a mother. They had to gently disentangle her from the casket in order to lower it into the ground. There's just no grief like a mother's grief for her child. And she knows that Jesus isn't going to survive crucifixion. Listen, nobody ever survived it. The only question was, how long is he going to have to suffer before the mercy of death can claim him? And I want you to picture you're you're now in Mary's shoes, and your ears, listen, your ears can hear everybody mocking him. And reviling him and taunting him. Listen, I don't know about you, but when somebody hurts one of my kids, I can tell you always just a fierce anger erupts in me. I want to protect them. Can you imagine what's going through Mary as her ears are hearing people taunt her son in the midst of of his suffering? Can you imagine what's going through Mary's mind as she looks right next to her at the base of the cross? There's the Roman death squad, the the centurion and three other soldiers, and they've already divided his clothes. Every Jewish man had five articles of clothing. They'd already divided four of them, and now they're gambling. They're throwing dice into an overturn helmet. They're gambling for his tunic. That's the seamless one. That's the valuable one. And friends, it's probably the one that Mary had sewn for him because it was the Jewish mother's blessing to sew a tunic for her boy. It was often the gift of the mother to her son when he left home. And can you imagine... What's going through Mary as she looks up to his hands. Listen, his his nerves have been severed and it brings your fingers into a claw and you cannot straighten them. There's no ability for your brain to now communicate to your fingers. They are irrevocably in a claw. And those are the same hands that she she used to hold so tenderly as she walked him from place to place. And the head that she used to kiss so fondly now has a crown of thorns jammed onto it. And the hair that she used to wash and used to brush and used to comb now is caked with sweat and blood. Can you imagine from Mary's perspective what is going through her heart as she sees her son on that cross? I think I could tell you what's going through Mary. I think scripture lets us know what's going through Mary. Here it is. It's what she heard from that old godly priest Simeon 30 years before who lovingly held baby Jesus in his arms and prophesied this to Mary. A sword will pierce through your own soul. This sword was piercing at that moment. And suddenly... Jesus, in the midst of his agony, Mary, in the midst of her overwhelming grief, suddenly the son speaks to his mother. And his third statement from the cross begins this way. Woman, behold your son. Now, let's be honest. Aren't you a little bit taken back by that? Woman? Listen, if you heard a child call to his mother, woman, wouldn't that smack of disrespect to you? Knowing the heartache and the sorrow that she is in the midst of, it makes this way that he addresses her seem even more unkind. Jesus, we know, is God in the flesh, right? Right? Can we extrapolate that? Ready? Jesus is God in the flesh. God is love, according to the Apostle John. God cannot be anything but love. There's no room in his character for unlove. So whatever he's saying to his mom, can we start out with this premise? He is loving her, and the title of woman is no exception. But let's make sense of why he calls her that word. And I think we can gain some pretty interesting insights. Number one, Jesus protected his mother. First, Jesus is protecting his mother. There's something in the, the, the title woman, the name woman, that's protecting her. Now, before I tell you and explain to you what I mean, let me be very sensitive. Because I don't really like pastors who just shoot from the hip and don't care who's in their audience. I know we've got a lot of people here that used to be Catholic in the Catholic church. We've got some here. I know we've got some here that are still in the Catholic Church. And I want to be sensitive to you. I don't want to be insensitive to you, but I want to teach you what the Scripture says. So what you're going to hear me tell you right now is not meant to hurt you. It's meant to point you to the Word of God. God knew, Jesus knew, that Mary would be known for being the mother of God. And that there would be in the idol-making hearts of humanity... Listen, John Calvin said of every one of us, our hearts are idol factories. We always worship created things rather than the Creator. And he knew in the idol-making hearts of humanity, there would be a tendency to take Mary, the mother of God, and elevate her to a point where you'll worship her. By the way... How did Jesus know this? Two answers. Number one, he's omniscient. He's not bound by time. You and I, we've got a past, present, and future. God exists in the future at the same time he existed when he created the earth. He lives outside of time. Time is within God. So he's omniscient. He knew what was going to happen. But listen, the worship of Mary, his mother, had already begun. Go to Luke chapter 11. You can see it on the screen behind me. He's preaching and there's a crowd. And there all of a sudden is a woman in the crowd who raised her voice and said to Jesus, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. There's already a tendency. There's already a movement of elevating Mary above the rest of the women of humanity. And so what does Jesus do? He brings Mary back down and he says this in the very next verse. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Don't bless my mother. Don't elevate her. If you want to bless, if you want to think highly of anybody, then think highly of my followers. Think highly of those who obey me out of a heart of trust. See, Mary was never meant to be honored as divine. She was never meant to be prayed to. She was never meant to be worshipped or trusted as the friend and the patroness of sinners. Listen, everything I just said belongs to only Jesus. And Elizabeth, you remember Elizabeth, her cousin. Mary's pregnant. Elizabeth is pregnant. And Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and get away from everything because she's not married and she's found to be pregnant and so when she arrives at elizabeth's home elizabeth's baby john the baptist still in her belly he leaps with joy because he's filled already with the spirit of god and elizabeth is filled with the spirit of god and says this to mary blessed are you among women not above Blessed are you among women. You see, she was never meant to help men and women make it to heaven. God had never given her the position of a mediator between God and man. And to put her in a status that belongs to divinity and to worship her friends is called mariality. She's standing by the cross. She's not hanging on the cross. And I can tell you, With utmost confidence that like most mothers, she would gladly, gladly take his place on that cross, but she couldn't. Her death would do the world no good. And this is what Gabriel was telling her when the angel appeared to Joseph and said, Joseph, the baby in Mary's womb will be named Jesus for he, not he and Mary, He alone will save his people from their sins. Friends, Mary was just as much in need of redemption as any other human being on this planet. And Jesus speaks to her, not as a son to a mother, but as a savior to a sinner, a redeemer to one who is lost. But I think it goes on. I think there's more reasons he said, woman, and the second one is this. Jesus is comforting his mother. Well, how could he be comforting his mother by calling her woman? So far, this has not been too difficult of a sermon. It's not been that meaty. But now you've got to take your fork and the knife in your mind and you've got to start chewing on meat. You've got to do the hard work of listening to a sermon and interacting. Ready? So let me walk you through something I think that is really, really interesting. All through the Gospels, if you've read them, You know that the relationship of Jesus to his mother, well, it just seems a little odd. I mean, don't you remember in Cana, that little town early on in Jesus' ministry in John chapter 2? Mary's been invited to a wedding. Jesus has been invited to a wedding. And they're both at this wedding. And all of a sudden, the wine ran out. You know what that was like in that culture? Wine running out was an omen for a cursed marriage. Wine was a central covenant-making drink. And so Mary comes to Jesus, her son, and says they've run out of wine. And Jesus says these words in John chapter 2, you see him behind me. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Again, woman, why is he talking to his mother like this? I think we've got... When you go back to the cross and he speaks to his mother in that group of five, I think you've got here a hint of the gospel and the title that he gave her. So let me take you back to the very first prophecy in all of Scripture. And it occurs in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But let me lead you up to that. God had created Adam... And then he brought all of creation, all of the species before Adam. And Adam was given the authority and the skills and the gifts to name each of these animals. And each of them came by Adam two by two or in groups of two. And at the end of that naming, Adam realized, wait, there's no one that is my counterpart. There's no one like me. I'm utterly alone on this planet. And God already knew that. God knew that Adam was alone. And that's not what God's intention was. It's not God's plan. So God created a a female partner for Adam. And what did Adam call her? What was her name? What? (laughs) Let's read it. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman woman because she was taken out of man did you notice what it doesn't say she wasn't called a woman her name was woman well you're likely thinking no her name was eve that is going to be her name at the end of chapter 3 when adam renames her eve the mother of living all living but at this point her name is woman there's nothing derogatory this is her name she is woman And immediately after this, we don't know how long, but at some point, Adam and the woman, his woman, his wife, sin. There's just one thing in all of creation God said you can't touch or can't eat rather. And they ate of it. They disobeyed God. They ushered sin into creation, broke the fabric of God's perfection. And God brings the serpent, who was Satan, who deceived them and led them into that, even a- or the woman and Adam, and he brings them all to court, and there's a tribunal. And God administers His justice; He administers the penalty, and He begins in verse 15 of chapter three of Genesis with Satan, and here's what He says: "I will put enmity that conflict between you and the woman." And between your offspring, that's the people of the world, and her offspring, that's God's people, now called the church. And he, singularly, shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. And that's a prophecy of crucifixion. Your offspring and her offspring, and then Jesus Listen, if you want a fancy word in Latin, remember the word proto-evangelium. Everybody say it. Proto-evangelium. proto-evangelium. You're speaking Latin. Proto is first. Evangelium is the good news of the gospel. The evangelium, good news. We're the evangelical free. There's no hyphen, by the way. We're not fat free. Okay, people call us. say, are you a cult? There's no hyphen. It's not that we're free of evangelizing. There's a lot more to it. If you want to know, go to the membership class. So there's enmity between you and the woman. And all of a sudden, this first prophecy in scripture, and it's pointing towards the first gospel proclamation when Jesus will die on that cross. And it's about what Jesus is going to do. He's going to crush and bruise the head of Satan on that cross. And Satan will bruise his heel. Some have taken that literally from the nail that was always put through the heel bone of the crucified victims. And all of a sudden, the title of woman brings the redemptive connection all the way back to that first prophecy straight to his mother. And I think what he's saying is, Mary, look what I'm doing. I'm fulfilling the prophecy and you're even in this prophecy. Well, let's go back to Cana for a moment. Three years before that, you remember at that wedding, Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And then he says this, my hour has not yet come. What's he mean? My hour has not yet come. Well, you got to go forward three years and now you're in the garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. And he's and it says, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. The hour is the suffering, the wrath of God on that cross. But he submitted to the will of the father and he says to his disciples, it is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Friends, the hour had come. He was on the cross to redeem and he is telling his mother you through the word use of the word woman connecting her back to that first prophecy. This has been the plan laid out from since creation since all eternity and I am living out the hour of redemption. This didn't catch me by surprise mom. In fact, my father and I talked about it all the way back in Genesis. Genesis. But not only does he protect his mother and comfort his mother, Jesus provided for his mother. Look what he says. Woman, behold your son. He's not talking about himself. He's not saying, woman, behold your son, me. He's saying, behold your son. And he's referring to the apostle John standing right next to her. You see, the wrath of Rome had fallen on him. But the infinitely worse wrath of God was about to fall on him. And yet, even in the midst of this, he's still fulfilling scripture perfectly. Don't you remember one of the Ten Commandments? Honor your parents. Honor your father and your mother. Even in the midst of this, Jesus, the firstborn, the eldest of the kids, he is taking his duty, his responsibility, and even in the midst of agony, he is honoring, he is providing for his mother, and he's entrusting her into the care of the apostle John. To tell you honestly, some of the best displays of love I have ever seen in our church. They have come through Kids who are adults that are taking care of their parents. And if you've been in that situation, you know there's a lot of sacrifice that goes with that. And there's a lot of willing sacrifice because you love your parents. Listen, when you're taking care of your aging parents and as they become increasingly dependent on you, you are following the example of Christ and throwing your love and your mercy upon them and watching over them and providing for them. This is the example that Jesus is setting, even from the cross as he provides for his mother. But there is one more final point. And it's this, Jesus promises his enduring love to his family. Look what he says again. Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. Did you know that Jesus had a large family of siblings? Were you aware of that? Look at the scripture behind me in Matthew. Is not this, the carpenter's son, is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers. He had four of them, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and are not all his sisters with us. He had four brothers and a lot of sisters. He had a large family and he's the eldest. He's the first born. And friends, you might be wondering, well, with all of these siblings and four of them being wage earning men why does he entrust his mother into john and not them and you don't have to go very far before the answer starts to whisper back at you john chapter 7 his brothers didn't believe in him they didn't trust that he was the messiah listen don't be surprised at that Psalm 69 prophesied this hundreds of years before. It said, I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house has consumed me. It was told hundreds of years before. Your own family aren't going to believe that you're the son of God. They're going to come to believe, but you're not going to see that happen until Acts one fourteen. But at this point, they did not believe. And Jesus intentionally takes his mother, whom he loves, and he gives her into the care of someone who loved him. And there's a little lesson in principle in it for us. And here it is. There were 11 disciples that night. Judas had already gone out and he had hung himself. He was the betrayer. There are, already ele- there are 11 disciples. And who do you see near the cross? You see one of them. You don't see Peter. You don't see Matthew. You don't see any of the other nine. You see one... And you see John, and it was John who was most faithful. John who risked the wrath of Rome in associating with someone they put on the cross. It was John who loved him so much that he could not leave him for long. He fled too, but he made his way back to the cross. And there he stood. Listen, if you want to experience God giving you great responsibility and great mission and great purpose in life, you've got to be faithful. If you're not faithfully walking with God, you will not experience the big things he has for you. He who is faithful in the little things, Luke says, will experience the bigger things. You will be entrusted with bigger things. And so he gives his mother into the care of John, who is right there faithfully near his cross as he is dying. Yet I think there's even more beautiful reasons. There's another reason I think that's even more beautiful for why he gave his mother to John. And it's one that encourages us. Let me take you through this. And I'm only going to be another couple minutes. Early... In his growing popularity, when Jesus started to really become famous. Listen, you talk to any pastor who experiences sudden growth in his church and almost without a doubt, you will hear him tell you of his battle with pride. Jesus begins to grow in fame and popularity and it begins to rile up opposition. He he becomes so popular that he doesn't even have time To eat a meal. People are clamoring for him. And one particular time his parents heard about this. Mark chapter 3 verse 21. And they heard about the claims that he was making. And they said these words. They thought he was out of his mind. They thought he went insane. And they traveled to where he was in order to seize him and bring him back home. And they find him and they arrive at this house and this house is packed full of his disciples and full of sinners. And he's teaching and he's preaching and he's loving and he's feasting with them. And they sent a messenger. Mary sends a messenger into the house who says, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside and they want you to come out and talk to them. They're there to seize him, to take him home because they think he's gone insane. And he says these words... In that house, who is my mother and who are my brothers and stretching out his hand toward his disciples, his followers, his faithful few. He said, here are my brother, my mother and my brothers forever. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And again, this sounds so harsh. Your mom's outside. She just wants you to come out. Listen, he's not depreciating. He's not lowering the value of his earthly family. He's appreciating. He's elevating the value of his spiritual family. His spiritual family had more access to the heart of Jesus than his earthly family. Here's your truth. If Jesus shows such kindness to his earthly mother from the cross, entrusting her care to John, then what kindness do you think he's going to show you who have been adopted into his family? You know that, right? That when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, he takes you out of your bondage to sin. He takes the wrath of the father and the justice due to you that that wrath would fall on you. He takes it onto himself and he puts you into his father's family so that Paul would say we are co-heirs with Christ. The same inheritance that Jesus gets, we get. The same love that the father has for Jesus, he has for us. The same blessings, Ephesians 1, that are poured out on the Son are being poured out on us. This is the great undertaught doctrine of adoption, and it's your truth. So those times when you think that God has left you, He cannot abandon His Son. Well, Pastor Tim, He left Him at 12 that day. He turned his back, forsook him, and came back and raised him from the dead. That same never leaving, never forsaking God holds onto you with his righteous right hand. You're his son and you are his daughter. That's the love he has lavished onto you, the Apostle John later wrote. Jesus loved his mother. He demonstrated it by protecting her, comforting her, providing for her. And he demonstrates to us this doctrine of adoption that the spiritual family of God is even closer to his heart than his earthly family. But our passage ends with this incredible statement. Would you look one more time at the text? Verse 27. And from that hour... The disciple took her home, took her to his own home. Did you know that many of the disciples owned their own homes? John 20 verse 10 tells us that. John owned a home and from that hour he took Mary, the mother of Jesus, into his home. Meaning this, she now came under his protection and providence as if she was his own mother. The legends say that John had a home that was built and located at the foot of Jerusalem at the bottom of the hill. And the story goes that in, I think, 11 years it was, John was going to move to Ephesus. If you remember my series of Revelation churches, those churches in Asia Minor, John's fingers were all over them because he ministered in the Ephesus church and in that era area. And the story says that when John left Jerusalem for Ephesus, there was with him a little old lady that they say was Mary, the mother of Jesus, who died in Ephesus. I don't know if that's true, but I do know this from that hour. Mary came underneath John's providence and love as if she was his own mother. See what love the father has for you. That you should be called a son of God. You are so loved. And you were in the mind of Jesus when he was nailed to that cross. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what we're learning. Lord, I pray that it's impacting us, strengthening our faith. Empowering us to live lives of purpose. Lord, may we be faithful even in the little things, and let you give us big things for your kingdom, your fame, and your glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.